Good morning, Cornerstone. It's great to be with you today. Uh, Tim Jacobs, as he said, I'm with uh, Evangelical Free Church of America, of which your church is a part. And I am very excited because today I got to bring along with me uh, my best friend in the world, my lovely wife right there, Judy. And we've been married for almost 25 years. And uh, so give her a round of applause, too, because... She has to put up with me, and she got up real early this morning because we drove up from the West Valley, Litchfield Park to be exact, up here, beautiful drive this morning. The church that I used to pastor before I got into this role um, had a wonderful family that left our church. And it's always a bummer when people leave, but then it's great when you find out they land somewhere good. And that is the Rawlings family. And so there you go. Yeah, how you doing? What's up? And they're right there. And, but your son, Jacob, I know. He's up there. So Jacob comes up to me, and, you know, he's like, last time I him, he was like this big. Now he's this big. And he's 13. So anyway, but he comes up with a headset around. He's like, hey, remember me? And I got to tell you, when you see 13-year-old young men serving in the church, wearing a headset, going around serving and like this, you know you have a healthy church. Okay? It's really important. And to engage young men like that at 13 years old is fantastic. You don't see it everywhere. And it's awesome. And I just wanted you to, to recognize what, how your church is doing and how wonderful it is for me to see that as someone that's known the Rawlings family for a long time. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. And what we're going to talk about today is this new series, Who We Are. And it's a series on your values. And so today, the value that you have, that's your, one of your stated values in your church, is practicing unity in a divided world. And as you're turning to the passage, I just want to show you real quick, because you're like, okay, you're this denominational guy. You may remember me from before. I always like to introduce our team. This is our district team we get to work with, and they're fantastic people. I love working with them. They're very good at what they do, and we we have a phenomenal time together. So Scott's mentioning me. It's, it's a team effort that we have to help our churches grow stronger. And really what our vision is, nothing more than what you see in Acts 16, uh, 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That's all we want to see are stronger churches and more of them. And of course, this is our... Uh, this is our map, so you can see we have about 200 congregations. So it's great to be with you at being so local in terms of where, where I reside. So you see this picture right here. This is an iceberg. And values, as we talk about values, values are a lot like an iceberg. In fact, the behavior that we see in people is that you can see outside is kind of like the, the tip of the iceberg, the exposed part. The values is all that is below. So values aren't merely beliefs. They're beliefs accompanied by strong emotion. When you hear something that, that, that you resonate with, you go, yeah, that's it. That's who I am. That's what I believe. You kind of feel it in your gut. A value is something that shapes your identity and drives your behavior. 
And so it's very fitting that you should talk about these things because if you want to understand why Cornerstone acts the way it acts, where you can see it headed in the future, this part here that's the outgrowth, you need to understand the values under the surface that are driving it. Values are not decided as much as they are discovered. You don't just say, oh, I want to be like this. This is kind of like how you're going to be and you're probably going to stay that way. You know what your values are too. If you've ever had an argument with your spouse, if you've been down to the last couple hundred dollars in your checking account and you have less money than you have things to spend it on. If you've ever been in that, that situation, should we, should we put it in the bank? Or should we, should we buy more expensive food or less expensive food? Should we, should we uh, go on a trip or not go on a trip? And, and the, the things that, that, that you fight about are oftentimes driven by what you value. And so for you as a church, your value here is practicing unity in a divided world. And all I want to do today is talk to you about what that means and then why it matters. So you have also not just the stated value, but you have what it means written underneath it. And this is what it says. The church of Jesus is an expression of harmony, not uniformity. That's a value, by the way. That's a value statement. So harmony is not, we're all singing the same note, but we're singing notes that resonate together. So sometimes when you hear a song where they're not in harmony, you could tell, and it's terrible, right? But it's not attractive to the ear. But harmonies that are, that are, that are in line with each other are beautiful. But you're not all singing exactly the same note on every, for every part of the music. Our mantra is, and this is an old saying, some re- related to St. Augustine, others to John Wesley, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. We leave respectful differences, uh, we leave space, for respectful differences on secondary issues in a spirit of generous love while courageously holding to convictions on the essentials of the Christian faith. That is your stated value. That's who you are, and that's not probably going to change. So really what you could do is you could boil those two two words down into this phrase right here, humble orthodoxy. It's often referred to as that phrase, humble orthodoxy. In fact, I was talking to Scott about it. We, we, he was really resonating with that phrase. And humble, what does humble mean? Well, C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself as much as thinking of yourself less, right? It's not having a too low of opinion of yourself or too high of an opinion of yourself, but rather an accurate opinion of yourself, how you really fit in the world. And orthodoxy comes from the Greek word ortho, which means straight. So if you go to the orthodontist, you get straight teeth, right? And doxy, which means praise or truth. So orthodoxy is straight truth. And you can see um, how these things resonate or how they fit together. So for example, when we look at secondary issues, what do we mean by secondary issues? Well, more than anything else, secondary issues are beliefs, 
preferences or practices that are not central to the gospel. So things like mode of baptism, you know, do you sprinkle or do you immerse? Or prophecy, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Or maybe what you feel about Calvinism and Arminianism. Or maybe the Bible translation that you use. Or I have one for you, worship style. People have been fighting over worship styles for, for centuries, ever since the early church. In fact, did you know that when the Hallelujah Chorus, which is commonly seen as one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever been written, when the Hallelujah Chorus was first played in England, people walked out because they thought, how dare, this is, this is horrible music, right? They couldn't stand it. They were, we're not going to listen to someone singing Hallelujah and the, it, almost every hymn that we know and treasure today, when it was first introduced, was like, oh, here we go. Everything's going downhill. That's just the way that has been throughout history. So these are things that are, but these are preferences that are not central to the gospel. But the second aspect of secondary issues have to do with um, matters over which we choose not to divide. And that's why there's a very important phrase we use a lot in our tribe called the significance of silence. This is really hard in a world where everybody wants to define everything and get down to the nitty-gritty and figure out where you're wrong on this minor point or that minor point. But we talk, have a doctrine or, or, or a value that we have as a denomination called the significance of silence. And really it's come about through a guy who is one of our founding fathers of our tribe. His name is A.T. Olson. And, and, and one of the things he wrote about was we don't want to uh, divide over things that have di previously divided Christians. And literally, this is his quote, Divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. So biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, love for Christ, equally dedicated to all of these things. We don't want to divide. Why would we want to divide over matters that are not central to the actual message that we believe in? And so that is what we mean by secondary issues. And you can see how this concept uh, will, will, uh, resonates here. But so now, um, if we look at our verse today, this is what it says in Isaiah 66 too. Because there is a passage, and you may not have seen this before, this verse actually captures with such brevity this concept in a way that no other verse really does. And this is God speaking, and he says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you see that? There's two things going on. Humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so your value of practicing unity in a divided world that desperately needs to see unity, by the way, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is, is captured in this verse. Because you can see the first part of the verse captures your whole value of leaving space for respectful differences on secondary issues in a spirit of generous love. While at the same time, trembling at the word of God means we're going to courageously hold to the convictions on the essentials of the Christian faith. We're not going to compromise on stuff. And so, right there we see 
And if you don't have those two, that's where you go off the rails. If you don't have the courageous conviction on the essentials, all you have is a church that might be really nice, but doesn't have a message. We have nothing to say. There's no reason for anyone to show up in the morning. And there are plenty of churches like that. We just, we, we just want to love everybody. Well, why even go? What do you have to say to anybody? I don't want to go to a place where they just go, think whatever you want. But how is that any, any value to me? Right? At the same time, though, if all we have is the courage of our convictions and we don't have humility, then we have arrogance and we have pride and we have all kinds of problems that creep up and we cannot be representatives of Jesus Christ in the world at all by our attitude and our actions. So let me talk then, now that we've kind of defined what it is, let's talk about why it's important. Practicing, there's going to be three things that we're going to identify as why your value is so critical right now, especially in our society. And the first one is this, practicing unity in a divided world, it confirms my understanding of the true gospel. In other words, when you are passionate about your faith in Christ and and you approach others with humility, it shows that you actually get it. And why is that? Because the very nature of the gospel itself, when properly understood, produces humility. And by the way, that's like no other faith or philosophy. This is why people who, who tend to be very educated struggle so much with being very arrogant. And there is something about knowledge, right? And the Bible warns us knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But the very essence of the gospel, what it teaches us, it naturally leads to humility. And here's one reason why. One of the books that we have everybody read that goes through any kind of licensing or ordination with us is a book called Evangelical Convictions written by a guy named Greg Strand. And in it, He says this, look at this, this is a great quote. He says, Christians are humble because their understanding of truth is not based on their own intelligence, their own research, their own acumen. Rather, it is 100% dependent on the grace of God, right? Christian knowledge is a dependent knowledge, and that leads to humility. So you don't arrive at this, it's revealed to you by God's good grace. Our very faith is the story of God saving us. See, if we had a faith that said you could work your way to heaven, then I could understand how the, 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 the more you know, the more you learn, the holier you are, the more you could set yourself above others and discredit and discount and disassociate with other people. But the natural idea of the gospel leads me to believe, like the scripture says very clearly in Titus 3, 5, for it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. So all I am is a thirsty pilgrim on this planet who God lovingly showed water to. And now I look for other thirsty pilgrims on this long journey. And I say, hey, I, th- I found water over here. I found water over here. You need it. It's not, oh, I look at me. I've, I'm, I'm so special that I have this, this biblical knowledge. My eyes were open because it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. In fact, the Bible describes very clearly our condition prior. So whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, 
Every single one of us was in this condition that the scripture talks about prior to our conversion. Look at this, Ephesians 4.18. They, referring to us, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And that's why, man, if you're a true believer, you're, you, there's no room for arrogance. There's only room for gratitude. There's only room for, being blow, for joy, for being blown away at the mercy that's been shown to you. And here's the thing. An arrogant Christian almost is an oxymoron. Because you can go to church, and you can learn all the lingo, and you can know how to navigate the Christian world and not have a clue what the gospel really is. And there's been plenty of people in church who have come across in an arrogant fashion as though they're entitled. You know, it's funny because I, I work with a lot of churches and, uh, and it's very common for some of the ones that are a little more difficult, you know, that have been through some difficult times and they're calling us to come in and help them to have some of their long um, senior saints, for example, that will come in. They'll say, I've been at this church since 1987. And I'm like, I don't care. Why does that matter? And they say it as a way of, I'm someone special here. Well, you know, well, I've, been at my ch- I've been at my church for 15 years. I pastored it for 12 years. I never lead with that. This church, I don't care. That, 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 why, is that, why does that give me any special status at all? I don't lead that church anymore. There's someone else that leads it, and we support what they do. Why, why in the world would my, would my tenure at a church give me any sense of hierarchy? Or, or It's ridiculous, but yet, but yet you guys, I hear this all the time. And it shows to me, I'm not really sure you get it, <laughs> to be honest with you. And so, one of the things that we have to look out for is that if we don't recognize this, we can become um, rather arrogant. The other thing we can do, too, is we can begin to import all these other things without understanding the gospel. Let me tell you something. The more uniformity that a church demands on secondary issues, listen to this, really important. The more uniformity a church demands on secondary issues, the more of a cult it becomes. It becomes like a cult. And you start to see this because they start talking less and less and less about the saving grace of Jesus and more and more about, you know, uh, I'm not sure about that Bible translation that you're using. Uh, I, that, that's, that song was written by, by Hillsong and uh, we, don't, we don't like those guys. And, that was, you know, and, and just on and on and on. And, it's a never, and you're never, ever, ever, ever good enough for these people. And that's the way cults are. Cults have a whole hierarchy. Cults and totalitarian governments. <laughs> They're very similar. See, what, what they'll do is they'll say, you know, like totalitarian governments, they look at the United States of America and they go, man, we don't understand you guys. You're so inefficient because you vote and you argue about stuff and you're always fighting with each other and you're swinging from this side, you know, this party to this party to this party to this party. And like, at least for us, you know, we, we all know what we believe, right? We walk in lockstep with each other. And it's very efficient. Yeah, it's also very evil right? You have great control over your people. But what they don't realize is the strength of the United States of America is in the tension of division, of, of division on those secondary matters, of the, the division, of the argumentation of, of the fact that we don't always see things eye to eye. And that's what brings up the great ideas and the great innovations and the clear understanding, because that's how we were made. We weren't made to just download a bunch of information like a bunch of robots into our head. 
But there are people who want to, to say out of their fear of whatever or actually really not understanding the nature of the gospel, not having that humility, we, they start getting down to everything down to the last little letter. And you're never good enough for those people. Don't be one of them. And I'm telling you, they're in every church. And if that's you, I get it. I, I've been on the road to that in my life at times. You got to surrender that right now. But at the same time, one of the things that's in your statement of faith, and it's in our statement of faith because we share the same statement of faith, we have a, a, one of our articles. It says that we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone. We believe that the true church... Is, uh, comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone. That's it. So here's the question. If, if someone's welcome in God's church, why can't they be welcome in our church? If someone's welcome in the big C, universal church, why can't they be welcome in this church? Right? So when every issue becomes critical, then nothing is critical. And that's, that's the, the problem. My brother... Uh, him and his wife, they made some friends with, with you know, these nice people. And all of a sudden, my, my brother was calling me. He says, says Tim, there's, I, this guy, you know, they're, they, they're, they seem like kind of real holy people, but like they love God. But then they start talking about how, you know, you, you have to refer to the name of Jesus as Yeshua. And if you don't, it's kind of blasphemous. And he's, what do you think about that? And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. And then I, you know, he told me more about it. And there's a whole thing called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And USA Today said it's not, they're not really Christians, they're not really Jews, they're just kind of like a blend of both. And, and it's a whole thing going back to like, you know, you've got to go celebrate all of the Jewish customs. And guess what? The more and more they get excited about that, the less and less they get excited about the saving power of Jesus Christ. And in that movement, quite frankly, for most of them, the gospel's nowhere to be found. But it's very attractive because it's very intellectual and you feel very holy because you're going back to the roots and everything else. But it's spreading all over the place. And of course, it's driven by the internet. And there will always be stuff like this. Always. And that's why we've got to keep the gospel central. And that's the second reason that, that this concept of, of, uh, of, we, of a humble orthodoxy or practicing unity is so critical. And that is it clarifies my mission and my priorities. It clarifies my mission and my priorities. Because, you know, you're never going to move past the gospel. Oftentimes we think, okay, we know that Jesus died for us, that's great, but like, let's get on to other stuff. And you know, the reality is you never get on to other stuff because you can never dredge the depths of the beauty of the fact that God became man and that he walked among us and that he showed us how to live and he lived a life we could never live and he died a death that we could never die. He paid a price we could never pay. And you never get to the end of that. You never go, yeah, 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 I got that, but what's next? There is nothing next. That's it. That's everything. And the return to that over and over is what brings that humility. And what, and what makes you go, okay, fine. But in light of Jesus, does it really matter if we sprinkle somebody or immerse them? I mean, we might have a preference and you might argue what you think is right. But, but who cares? What's important is that because that's so much bigger and greater. Does it really matter, you know, this, whether there's a, this instrument or that instrument or where you put? I mean, literally, there's a church we were working with and this lady complained about where we put the, the, the announcements in this service. Why? Well, I, like, I don't like the announcements in this part of the service. It's like, lady, I don't know if you get the gospel. I don't know if you get the God, because if you're, if you're taking time out of your life to write an email about that, what is wrong with you, honestly? Do you not see the situation that we're in here? There are people dying and going to hell, and you're worried about where we put announcements in the service? Come on! For many people, politics has become the new religion. 
That's another thing, too. I feel like wherever I go, I talk about politics. And listen, I know, I know we're divided right now. I know we just had an election, and it gave a lot of people, you know, an ulcer, which is going to do. And can I tell you something? This is the problem. For a lot of us, we have to check our hearts. Because when you stand before God someday, he's not going to go, man, I was so proud of the way you, you stuck up for your political values. Let me tell you something. For a lot of us, our politics are getting in the way of our witness. People are missing Jesus because all they hear from you is your politics. And they will never accept your Jesus because you put up a big giant wall that's got a donkey or an elephant on it and they can't get past that. You know, Paul says, I became all things to all men. And we need to think about that. So when I sit down with someone who clearly has a different political philosophy than I do, the easiest way to get them to never accept my Jesus is to tell them why they're wrong about their politics. What I'd rather do is meet them where they are and find out what's important to them, what makes them tick, what questions and needs and concerns they have, and then try to figure out how the gospel answers those. Forget the politics. We're, we're, we're so worried about the direction of the United States of America. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But you know what? It's not America that built Christianity. It's Christianity that built America. It's the values that came forth, the ideas of who humanity is and who God is and what that means for liberty and how we structure an economy, that all came from an understanding of what God says about us is written in the Word of God. It's Christianity that built the country that we have, and it's not America that's going to rescue Christianity. It's not politics that's going to rescue Christianity. It's Christianity that's going to rescue America. And when you have more people who are authentically from from, from from liberals to conservatives to independents to libertarians or whatever they are, whatever stripe they are, Antifa, KKK, all the, whoever it is, and they are, they are turning from their ways and they're bowing the knee to Jesus. As long as that's happening in America, we got nothing to worry about. Our economy will be fine. Our crime rate will go down because people are authentically following Jesus. Trying to break them, they're, they're, they're trying to outsmart them politically is going to do nothing. Now, at the same time, it's important that we don't oversimplify this kind of stuff. Because what I want you to hear, as I said before, yes, believing that Jesus is Savior is great, but that's not the only thing that constitutes the gospel. Because you might be hearing you say, okay, sounds like what you're saying, Tim, is that the only thing that really matters is that, that we believe in Jesus and we don't disagree on anything else. That's not what I'm saying, because there are many churches today that are throwing out large sections of the Scripture in the name of so, so-called unity. But the gospel isn't just that Jesus is Savior, it's also that what? Jesus is Lord. So you take the controversial issue of sexuality, for example. And there are many churches that are saying, we don't want to teach what the, God, the Bible says about sexuality, or we're going to change it and twist it to accommodate the sensibilities of culture. But part of being a Christian is not just believing that he died on the cross for my sins. It's following his ways. It's surrendering my life to his lordship. And when I do that, I find freedom. I find joy. I find peace. I radiate the fruit of the Spirit. So when it comes to sexuality, God's design for marriage is clear in the word of God. So we, we, this is where we have to go back to the trembling at his word. God design, God's design for sex is one man, one woman in the context of marriage. That is, that is the only structure that can handle the intensity of sexuality. 
And so all of us, whether you're gay, straight, whatever, wherever you come, you are welcome at this church. We want to go on the journey of Jesus with you and we want to live with compassionate hearts that don't set ourselves up above anybody else or consider. But we all know we come to Jesus in deep need of his healing and we come to Jesus in deep need of surrendering daily the things that are not in conformity with his will. And for some people, that's going to be harder than others. I get that, which is why we need to have deep compassion and love for, for, for our brothers and sisters, okay, in all walks of life. But, this, but, the, but we cannot compromise on that because if we do, we lose the gospel. It's not the gospel anymore because it, it's, it's, it's living outside of the plan of God. It's living outside of the, of the pathway to following Jesus. In the same way that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, if I said, well, you know, I'm not really wired that way. I think that, you know... I'm just not really that nice of a person, so I'm just not, I'm going to ignore that part. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but I'm going to ignore the whole love your neighbor as yourself. You, go, that's, you can't do that. He's, this is how you, this is a, that's a fundamental part of the gospel. So when we look at issues that are controversial, for example, things like sexuality, we know that as I conform my life to God's plan and God's will and trust in Him, that is loving my neighbor as myself. As hard as it might be, that is the pathway to doing that. And that is the pathway to obedience. That is the pathway to restoration. And so we can't throw out our convictions, and we won't throw out our convictions, but we will be loving, and we will, be, and we will walk in deep fellowship with those who are stumbling and struggling, as we all do. And that's, and that's not just for people who aren't necessarily heterosexual, because I'll tell you, there's a lot of people who have come to the church that I pastored who were, you know, living together outside of marriage and everything else. And I'd say, hey, look, God loves you, but you need to get married or you need to stop doing what you're doing because you're outside of the will of God. I, and I love you, but that's just, we, we, we're not going to change the rules for you. You're not exempt because you feel differently about it. We tremble at the word of God. And so that's how we have to handle that. The third thing I'd say about why this is so critical, is that it connects me with others I would otherwise like to dismiss. Okay? Because there's many people I'd like to dismiss. But we know that Jesus is the only way. I mean, you guys look. We have racial division. We have political division. We have economic division. We have all kinds of division going on in this country right now. But the message of Jesus is the only hope that we have. You see in Ephesians that... that uh, that Jesus, that, the, that Paul says that he's conquered and knocked down that dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus brings racial healing because we all come to God as his creation, knowing that no one's better than the other, and we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so we walk hand in hand with that, and, and it, it bridges those gaps because it says race doesn't matter. It's not important. What's important is the commonality we have as sinners, uh, sinners who have come to Jesus and found grace. That's our commonality. And you've seen the pattern in Scripture political division. And I had a great conversation with Scott about this. Did you know that, you know, we talk about Peter and James and John as being the famous disciples that everybody knows about, but there are other disciples as well. For example, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. Did you know Simon the Zealot, if you were a zealot, that meant that you were basically, literally an, uh, a, a, a terrorist in the Roman Empire whose goal was to rid the Roman Empire uh, of, of control of Israel. So they, were, they would do terrorists. They were anti-government. They were the most anti-government people you could, and they would use terrorist tactics. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector, who's basically a Washington insider bureaucrat, right? You have polar opposite people, anti-government and in the hands of the government, 
both following Jesus because they came from lives where they were not following God and now they surrendered those things and they're able to work together. And I'm sure they probably had disagreements about how everything should play out, but they put them behind them because they said what's more important is the gospel. And it bridges these gaps. And so, the crucial question is this. Time is short. Am I clear on the gospel? Or have you imported things? Well, fine, you got to love Jesus, but you better vote this way. <laughs> you got to love Jesus, or you better think this way about how church should be. About, you know, what, what, what we should focus on and prioritize. And I'm just telling you, that will, that will, you will never fully understand the gospel. And here's the thing for me. The longer I'm, I'm a Christian, and you know, I've been to seminary a, a couple times, and I've done a lot of studying and everything else, and the older I get, I mean, the older I get, the more convinced I am that this is true. I mean, the more convinced, I am the most exclusivist guy in the world. I believe that Jesus is the only way. And yet at the same time, there's more and more things I, I'm silent about because I go, man, I was so convinced about this secondary issue. I'm not quite sure anymore. Or you know what, I still believe this, but I could see how someone else could understand it a different way, and I respect that. And that's actually, you know what it does? It strengthens my position. It strengthens the core conviction, because I go, this person can see things differently, but they still see the same Jesus. That's pretty amazing. There's strength in that. And it's clarity in that, because I realize that thing I thought was so important maybe isn't as important as I thought it was. So, your next step Scott's really good at having you do a next step. I like that. Is recognize a moment of tension and apply humble orthodoxy to it. Apply this, I, this, this value. So when you, when you encounter someone that disagrees with you in, in terms of, you know, of a, a, a secondary matter, but rather than just dismissing them, rather than going, well, they're stupid. Well, why, does this, why does this person think this? And leave space it means to leave space for differences on a secondary issue. Okay, that, that's one aspect of this next step is not freaking out when you hear something different, but at the same time, courageously holding your conviction on the gospel. And you'll be surprised oftentimes at how people can come from different traditions and different preferences and different backgrounds, but they love Jesus with a sincere love. And that really brings life. It's like it just makes the gospel even more and more brilliant in all of its spheres. Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, when, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, you know, it was kind of a big deal. Because like, well, here we go. You're going to put your, <laughs> your literal Jan John Hancock on this thing. And when you put your name on that thing, at that point, it was basically treason. And they knew the stakes of, of what they were doing. And, John, and uh, Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying this to them, to all the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. We stick together, or we're, this, this thing's over. We're, we're going we're to hang. And I think there's something to be said for that. I'm so glad that these founding fathers of our nation who vehemently oftentimes oppose each other about what to do with the British, about states' rights, about the role of the federal government, all you can still read about these things. And yet, 
they said, no, this, we're, we, we, we can't divide. We've got to stay united on this because this is the mission. And if, had they not done that, we would not have what we have today. And I think the stakes are even higher for the church. If we don't come together around the gospel and the, the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel now, and, and I'm sorry, you need to surrender some of this stuff that you think is so important. And it's harder to do that oftentimes as you get older too. And say, what matters is people understanding that Jesus is Savior and He is Lord. And that's what I'm going to live and die on. And if we don't come together around that, it's over. The stakes are too high. The time is now. And we've got to get it right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the fact that you have given us a message that produces humility and produces gratitude. The two most attractive qualities that, 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 could, that could be produced in a human being. That the very nature of our faith is one that causes us to be in awe and wonder of who you are. And causes us to want to reach out to other people. Not put up walls. So I pray for this church, if there's anyone here today who needs to just crucify some of that stuff. Say, yeah, politics is important, but I'm done. I'm done living and breathing that stuff. If I don't, if, if I don't live and breathe the gospel, who will? Right now, they would just say that and commit saying, you know what, God, I, I'm going I'm to lay aside these secondary things. I want to look for ways I can build bridges with those who believe the essentials as I do with a spirit of humility. God, if there's anyone here today who needs to come to know you for the first time, discover your grace and forgiveness, right where they are, they would just say, Lord Jesus, I give up. I'm done pretending I'm a good person. I'm done pretending I got it all together. I'm done pretending I can stand before you someday with this wonderful resume of all the beautiful things I've done. I fall on my knees in humble repentance to you because you, in you only, is their life and their forgiveness. And that's what I need desperately right now. Just tell them that. And I'm ready to go on the journey with you. It will not be easy. I will not be perfect, but I will follow. Thank you for this gift of the gospel you've given to us. May we steward it, care for it, embody it, embrace it. May this church be known in this town is all about Jesus. In your name, amen.